Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome back to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic, presented by BetMGM. I'm Max Boltman. With me, as always, is Prashant Iyer. The Red Wings are coming off a uh, weekend series in Chicago. They split the series. I don't know that I thought they looked particularly good in either of those games, though, Prashant. Yeah, it was uh, more of the same from what we talked about earlier last week, where it was kind of games where the Wings weren't as you know, strong as maybe you would expect. I know the second game in particular, the the numbers may indicate otherwise. I mean, they had, what, 46 shots on goal, but weren't particularly great shots, uh, in my opinion. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it was just another couple of games where the wings were able to hang around, but nothing super impressive from my standpoint. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I mean, it, it was one of those situations where, uh, you know, game one, they score five goals. So that so that gave them not only a two-game win streak for the first time this season, but a two-game streak uh, of scoring five goals, which I kind of didn't think would ever happen for this team. Maybe not even one time for this team uh, this year based on how their offense is constructed. But you go in and you look at it and, you know, as much as I think, you know, the goals themselves weren't bad. I mean, I thought that they were luckier against Nashville a couple nights before you you look at the end of the day and i think they they got dominated in possession it was like a 37% expected goals percentage of 5 on 5 uh they did get their first power play goal but i don't think it was much better in all situations um so so they they end up getting it the you know the win and and it, it ends up looking like a pretty good offensive performance without Dylan Larkin which we'll get into in a second um but then when when it comes back then the next night and it's a 7-2 loss Really, that's uh, that's kind of things evening out, it seemed like. Yeah, I mean, you go to the first game, you're absolutely right. I mean, you look at the numbers uh, from that first game, and the Wings at 5-on-5 five five gave up 3.2 expected goals against. That's their highest figure for the season. I mean, that's uh, certainly not a great defensive performance, and, and really they're, they're bailed out by Jonathan Bernier. But by the same token, you know, you're, you did this without – Dylan Larkin in both games. You did this in the second game with also without Larkin, Fabry. Uh, you know, you're still missing Tyler Bertuzzi. You're still missing Troy Stetcher. And then you Nemeth. played. Yeah, you know, you're missing Patrick Nemeth as well. So arguably, you're missing three of your top four forwards. You're missing your best defenseman and you're missing your starting goaltender and you're missing, you know, a number four defenseman for them as well in Nemeth. So, uh, all you know, you put in all those factors and and you can still walk away from the weekend saying, okay, we got to split against the team that was 4-0 against against the Red Wings kind of coming into that series. But uh, they always leave you wanting more, I think. They do. I think that's an accurate description. Um, 
Before we we dive too much more into a couple of those individual storylines, the one that I wanted to just spend a second on um, is the end of the power play drought. I mean, Christian Juice is ultimately the one who gets the goal there. Um, but I thought that the timing of it uh, right after you had uh, you know, signal boosted a movement that started on Reddit by, I think the guy's name is Denver law 14, the Reddit user. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, you signal boosted an idea of his and, and really, I think took it kind of to another level on Twitter uh, with your following, getting people to pledge $1 for every missed power play, as long as the streak went by the time that happened, uh, you know, I, I wondered if you might be ponying up, uh, you know, enough for one of your very nice bottles of whiskey that you're often <laughs> championing. It ends up breaking quite quickly after that. Uh, but $40, I, I was really uh, kind of moved to see the, how, how widespread this got. I ended up chipping in um, as well, just because I, I thought that was such a cool thing that, that Red Wings fans did. Um, and, and I think the total, did it get over 10,000? It was approaching 10,000 at one point. Yeah, I mean, as far as I can tell, when they replied to me on on uh, Sunday to let me know that it was close to double what I had estimated from the screenshots I had received, I think in the subsequent hours after retweeting that, I got a handful of more screenshots. So, you know, I'd have to imagine it is now north of, of $10,000, which really is just a testament to, you know, Red Wings fans being able to take a frustrating aspect of the game that being their power play and really turn it into something positive that can impact the Metro Detroit community and a lot of, you know, other areas as the Jamie Daniels foundation does so much good work with, you know, substance use disorders, providing people access to resources, uh, really, really nice job all around. So I think every fan who was able to, to contribute, and even if you, even if you couldn't contribute at all, but were able to just be a part of the, you know, movement and, and signal boosting and, and things along the way. I think that's all outstanding and really just a testament to uh, the fan base uh, by and large. Yeah, I thought it was really cool and, and a really good, uh, like you said, way to, way to turn something that I know people have been very frustrated by uh, into something meaningful. And if you are just now hearing about it for the first time because you're not on Twitter, I know that's the case for some of our listeners, uh, you can still contribute to the Jamie Daniels Foundation if you want to do the the dollar per missed power play that comes out to, to $40. And, and you can go to the website at jamiedanielsfoundation.org um, if that's something you're interested in, in being a part of. So anyways, I just thought that was pretty cool, um, and especially for, for as much as we've harped on the power play on here uh, to, to see something uh, positive come of it. I, I, I really thought that was great. So anyways, they, they break through and they end up scoring power play goals in both of these games. So Christian Juice does it in game one. And then Evgeny Svechnikov gets one in game two and, and Svechnikov quite, uh, I don't know if it was quietly, people were really excited about it. Three points in two games in his first action of the year. And so my big question is, what do you make of this? Is this like, okay, if the Red Wings are seeing that they actually do have something here. Is this a statement for Evgeny Svechnikov or is this just a nice weekend? And, um, you know, kind of a, a couple of goals that maybe you're not going to expect to see, uh, see him on the score sheet. Certainly maybe not a point per game, but, uh, but quite so often going forward. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to be really impressed with his performance this weekend. I thought he was arguably, you know, Detroit's best forward over the course of the weekend. I mean, he was a guy who was consistently involved in the play, consistently doing a nice job on the forecheck. Uh, positionally, which I think had been a challenge for him in, in, in prior seasons, positionally, I thought he was quite sound. He knew where he needed to be. I mean, his first goal... Uh, getting the tap in at the net. I mean, being able to use his size and frame, get to the front of the net, be there for the rebound and finish the play. I think that's outstanding. 
And then the the power play goal he scores in the second game is really more typical of what I think Wings fans were expecting when he was drafted, just seeing just a real quick receives the pass and in one motion turns, faces the net, rips a shot top corner over the over Lincoln's blocker. I mean, that was that was absolutely filthy. And the funny part is, is as I was watching it, as soon as I saw the puck hit his stick, I said, that's going to go in the net, isn't it? And then as soon as he releases it, it's just a rocket of a shot. So you know, overall, a very encouraging weekend for him. I think he's got to be feeling great because, you know, after all the injury struggles he's had over the years and being able to consistently crack the lineup, now he's getting an opportunity with so many injuries and he's absolutely taking advantage of it. I I don't obviously think you'll see him score at this rate. Um, you know, no one scores at this rate besides Connor McDavid and, and Leon Dreisaitl, but you will see him, I think, continue to to warrant more attention and and warrant more ice time and uh he was able to do this you know playing with you know Franz Nielsen and Valtteri Fopola and then Franz Nielsen and Matthias Brome not necessarily the the strongest offensive minded uh players at five on five so I I think overall you you have to walk away really impressed with him yeah, I mean, I think the the question here is going to be about kind of off the puck, and and that maybe is is what as as the as the production slows is what this is going to come back to. But right now, the Red Wings uh, aren't a team that that scores a lot of goals, and so finding anyone who can give them that, especially on the power play like he did the other night, to me is is a bit of a statement. Now, um, how long does it last? I'm not sure. You know, personally. Yes, I very much hope it lasts at least through through Thursday of this week so that he can play against Andrei Svechnikov in, in Carolina um, as a selfish, selfish writer who who hopes for that narrative. Uh, that's my personal hope. But he, he's probably going to have to get through a game in Columbus first, and that's a team that certainly uh, will, will pose some challenges for him. And, you know, that's a team you got to play really tight and you got to do your job against. And so... Um, I think that's kind of going to be a test for him. I, you know, I don't know that the off puck game stood out a ton to me either way necessarily. I mean, there was one goal where I think uh, he was kind of at the back of the frame as Chicago scored it. I'm trying to remember who it was. Do you remember this? I can't even remember which of the goals scored in the third period were with which Red Wings players on the ice because it sort of felt <laughs> like uh, I was watching the Space Jam scoreboard go up, up, up. And then it says, you know, the mercy roll comes up or something like that. So I couldn't even tell you. Yeah. I don't, I don't remember either. I mean, he, he was a minus two for the game. Um, but when you lose seven, two, you kind of expect that from just, you know, the, a given person is going to be a minus two and he's not getting a plus for his power play goal. So, um, I think that's, you know, that's going to be what I'm curious to watch is, is how he plays off puck when he's not scoring goals because he's not going to score goals forever. But um, this is a team that that can't really turn down offense when offense presents itself. And that's what Sveshnikov did. And I thought he was just good overall in, in game one, especially. And so um, certainly I think he's played well enough to stay in the lineup right now. Yeah, I mean, if you total his two games, he's a 22 minutes at five on five and a five on five expected goals for percentage of 60%. In two games where the wings were really 50% and worse in both of them individually. So, you know, obviously that's largely driven by his performance in the first game, wasn't as good in the second game. But, you know, that being said, I think it's still very, very encouraging to get that kind of sample out of those first two games for him. Yep. Yep. I think that's fair. So we'll see where it goes from here now. I mean, I, I, uh, I think people were probably just very excited to finally see him get in. And it was such a, you know, long process for him to go from, the taxi squad, even just getting in the lineup, 
ultimately the way it happens is uh, one that I, I'm not sure is the ideal way because it, he basically comes in as Dylan Larkin goes out and, and Larkin's out with uh, an undisclosed injury. He missed both games. They're not sure if he's going to be back in time for this swing now to Columbus and Carolina. Um, and then obviously Fabry goes out as well and, and we'll see if he's back. But um, do you, what do you make of, of kind of the absence for Larkin? I mean, I think they're on the broadcast, they were showing a play around the net that Larkin maybe took one, uh, you know, upper half of the body. I don't know if, if you'd call it the midsection or was it the ribs or and I couldn't quite tell what, what it's highlighting there, but um, that maybe is kind of the leading theory for what happened, I guess. Yeah, it was tough to tell what they were signaling. My actually thought was his hand or his forearm uh, because in the third period of that uh, game against Florida, he didn't take any face-offs and only played three minutes. And so I wonder if they were just trying to protect his hand or arm uh, to a certain extent there. So it'll be it's 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 tough to say for sure what's going on because of the nature of the way the NHL talks about injuries, where everything is either upper, lower or covid, um, you know, but hopefully it's nothing long term that keeps him out for a while because the wings really can't afford to be without both him and Tyler Bertuzzi for an extended stretch. And for that matter, Robbie Fabry, who, yeah. you know, has been one of their better scorers since he got to Detroit and, and one of the few guys who can capably fill in at center with some prayer of facilitating offense, um, even though he had been playing wing a little bit, you know, that, that's certainly not uh, not one of the not not a tandem you want to lose at the same time or a trio, I guess, even for that matter. So um, but we'll move on. And, and from there, I, I wanted to spend a lot of this show talking about the goalie situation. We talked about Jonathan Bernier fairly recently in the season he's having remains really impressive. I thought he was quite good again uh, Saturday, even though he gives up three goals. I think it was on like, you know, 36 or 39 or whatever it was shots. Um, he played a good game. I mean, really the the one goal comes in the last minute. And even then, you know, he it, it was, uh, you know, his, his save percentage for that game stays really high. Um, we talked about how the Red Wings weren't very good in either game. And one of them, they win. And the kind of steal, I think, would be a fair way to call it, um, partly because of Jonathan Bernier and the other, uh, they get blown out. And Thomas Grice is in net for that one, as he so often has been um, in, in what seems like a lot of their worst games this year. And so it's kind of, to me, it raises a natural question of, of are the Red Wings um, playing better in front of Jonathan Bernier? Uh, is is Bernier just playing that much better than Grice? You know, it, it's obviously the same team, more or less, in front of both these guys, but this last game accepted because of the uh, injuries we just talked about. What's going on here? Why such a discrepancy between Bernier and Grice? You know, it's it's really funny because I looked into it expecting to find exactly what you, you said, Max, that the Wings were just simply defending better and allowing lower quality chances in front of Jonathan Bernier and that really Thomas Grice was getting the short end of the straw. That That's actually not the case. So if you if you take a look at the quality of shots allowed in each of their games, um, we can do this by looking at expected goals against at five on five being kind of the, the good proxy for five on five play here. When Thomas Grace is, is in those games and in his minutes, the Wings allow 1.87 expected goals against per 60 minutes. That's the third best in the NHL um, for goalies who played at least 10 games, which is 37 goalies. You contrast that with Jonathan Bernier. When Bernier's in the game, the Wings give up 2.61, almost one more goal per game they should be expected to give up uh, with Bernier on the ice. So it's actually the exact opposite. They are playing better in front of Grice 
at least when you consider the quality of chances they give up at five on five, you know, I just said Grice has the third best or the third kind of least dangerous chances to face. Bernier faces the sixth most dangerous. He's 31st in that same number that I just said Grice was third in. So it really, when you step back and look at it, Jonathan Bernier is just flat out standing on his head. Um, and that seems to be driving the huge difference. But at the same time, time Grice has been far from good. And, and when I try to step back and figure out what's going on here, I think part of the issue is the Wings tend to give up a goal early with Grice. I think they tend to get down in the game earlier and they start to open up their system a little bit. And while that doesn't necessarily manifest itself in a large volume of dangerous shots, I think it is manifesting itself in a lot of rush chances, specifically what you saw um, in in the third period against Chicago in the second game there, where these shots off the rush teams seem to be targeting uh, his right pad right now. I mean, I'm seeing a lot of goals going right over his right and left pad. And it's just kind of a, I wonder if there's a book on him and teams are being able to figure it out by shooting off the rush. But the numbers do not bear out that the team is playing better in front of Grace. They're really playing or playing better in front of Bernier. They're playing way better in front of Grace. And that's fascinating to me because because when you look at Thomas Grice's numbers, they are almost identical to Jimmy Howard's from last year. Um, and, and that was a big talking point that we had coming into this season was one of the reasons we thought the Red Wings were going to rise from the historically bad level they were at last year to just regular all bad in the bottom three this year was because the goaltending was going to come back to, you know, you know, Jonathan Bernier was excellent last year. We actually thought he might take a little bit of a step back just because of how good he was down the stretch. But we thought Thomas Grice was going to make up that difference and be about as good. And you were going to have much more consistent play in net. Well, right now we're sitting here, you know, Thomas Grice has played 15 games. His save percentage is 882. Last year, Jimmy Howard's save percentage, that's right, 882. Thomas Grice's goals against is better at 346. Howard's was uh, 4.2. Um, but ultimately, even in the wins and loss columns, Jimmy Howard finished last year 223 and 2. And Grice right now is 111 and 3. I mean, it's it's uh, it's a mirror image. Yeah, it's... Uh... It's kind of scary. I mean, to a certain extent. And now, you know, I should uh, go back and rephrase something that I said earlier. So I said the Wings are playing better in front of uh, Grace than they are Bernier. That's with respect to the quality of chances they're allowing. Yeah. Uh, obviously, goal support has not been there for Grace. Sure. And I think I think that's the that's really the crux of the issues. The Wings get down. They don't have the goal support for Grace because again, a large number of Grace's games have come when the Wings have had substantial injuries. Uh, you know, when Bernier was out for his several games that coincided with when the Wings had five guys on the COVID list, um, you know, being Sam Gagne, Robbie Fabry, Adam Ernie, Philip Zadina, John Merrill. Grice played all of those games. I think a lot of the numbers really got, you know, driven up there. But even since, you know, those guys have come back and the Wings are, you know, for the large part, just missing kind of Tyler Bertuzzi, uh, Grice has still not been able to match what the effort from Jonathan Bernier and you know, I think that being said, Bernier is playing out of his mind and continues to play out of his mind going all the way back to December of last year. And so maybe it's an unfair standard to hold Grice to. But I think Grice himself knows that he can be a lot better than what he's been so far. I think you saw that with his frustration. Um, I think it was the I don't remember sixth goal, seventh goal when he smashed his stick against the post. I mean, it was you can tell that he's frustrated with his performance as well. So. 
hopefully there is some bounce back because I do think Thomas Grice is a much better goalie than what we've seen. I, I want to circle back to um, something you said a minute ago about you know the, the Red Wings getting that early goal when they have Bernier, and, and that certainly would translate to what you were just saying about you know the the goal support being a factor. The Red Wings aren't a team that's well suited to in their normal system come back. Like they're a team that's best protecting a lead and then they can play how they want to play when they're up. And I think this is something Sam Gagne kind of talked about last night was, you know, one thing that happened in the third period is you're chasing a lead and and maybe that you get away from your system and, and you play in the way that um it maybe you're taking more risks because you know you're already down. It's kind of similar to how you when you pull your goalie it does make it easier for the other team to score, but you take that risk because you know that if you don't uh, do something, you're, you're going to lose. And so I, it's, it's not quite the same. I think the Red Wings would like to um, keep their system better and, and just try and wait for that opportunity like they got in the third period on the Svechnikov power play goal. Um, but I do think there's something to that. I, I think there's something to the idea of if you're getting better goal support in those games early, you can play the way you're built to, the way you're designed to, to play. And if that's not happening for Grice, I think you can take a little bit of, I don't know, maybe a little bit of the, uh, the, 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 the blunt force off of that criticism for him. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, at the same time, I think there is a two way street with it, right? Because you have to keep the team in it long enough for them to get you that first goal. Right. Maybe Bernier is, is, is creating that for himself by stopping a tough chance early. Yeah, and I, I think that's what it is, is you're seeing Jonathan Bernier go and the guy, I mean, the guy's an absolute machine right now. And and when he is playing the way he's playing, I mean, he is not giving up anything easy. Um, I mean, that's why he ranks in the top six in the NHL and kind of five on five expected goals for saved above expectation. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's really impressive to watch. And so... I think that's the challenge for the wings. And I was having this conversation, I think a little bit with you last night, a little bit with other people. Uh, The wings are a very tightly wound net defensively. And when they can play that way, they are suffocating to play against. We've seen every team have to experience that when the wings are are playing well and they're able to influence their system, really influence other teams with their system it creates dirty hockey. It's mucking up the neutral zone. Nothing is clean. Uh, it frustrates other teams. Um, if you then see the wings get down in the game and they have to go away from that, they have to start activating their defense. They have to start forcing the third forward to, to be a little bit more aggressive and not drift as high. What you start to see are those easier zone exits from the opposition easier transition through the neutral zone, easier zone entries, and ultimately good rush chances. And I think that's just something that's unavoidable because the Wings don't really have the talent to, to win the game when they uh, if they're going to stay the way that they're playing. But when they open it up, they simply don't have the talent, in my opinion, to, to really be able to close the gap. So it's kind of a no-win situation when they fall behind uh, and you saw that as soon as that Bobby Ryan penalty happened and Chicago scored to make it 4-1, um, it was basically game over. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right. So we can transition from there then into something that is a a little less concrete um, and into maybe the the land of the speculative, which I know this is the time of year where that becomes uh, almost all of the fun. So The Athletic uh, NHL released our first edition of the Athletics Trade Board uh, Monday. Craig Custance and Eric Duhachik teaming up on that. Obviously, there's a few of the usual suspect Red Wings on that list. That would be Luke Lindenning at 13, Jonathan Bernier at 15, Bobby Ryan at 16. Um, Certainly, we can go back at some point and debate uh, Jonathan Bernier again uh, in the context of can you trade him when he's been so big uh, for this team? Do you almost consider extending him? But um, I think the thing that a lot of people are going to key into from this is is something that was in the Luke Glendening section of this article from Craig and Eric. And that says um, there's also a belief that Red Wings GM Steve Eiserman would consider trading one of his younger forwards like Tyler Bertuzzi and Anthony Mantha in the right deal. There's a quote from an NHL exec that says, I wouldn't be shocked if Eiserman moved one of his top young forwards. I think he's listening on a lot of things. And so um, obviously we got to talk about that right now, right? I mean, this is, uh, you know, we, we kind of know who the rentals are, uh, the rental candidates are. Um, and that being those those ones that we just mentioned, you could also toss Patrick Nemeth into that mix. You could also toss uh, John Merrill maybe into that mix, I suppose, or even a Mark Stahl. Uh, obviously, different levels there. I mean, Stahl's salary is obviously so difficult to uh, accommodate that the Red Wings got a second round pick for taking him not too long ago. So it's very important to be mindful for, of that. Merrill seems like he's become a quick kind of coach's favorite in Detroit. And um, we've talked about the idea of maybe even extending him. But I think the trade deadline goes to a whole new place when you start mentioning a couple of those names that are in there. I mean, Mantha and Bertuzzi, you know, this these are two of the guys who when Eiserman took over, they were your, you know, age 24 pieces that, that really you had going for you as an organization when he got there. You've got a couple of age 24 first line players that you can build around. And now here we are, both are now 26. Uh, Mantha will be 27 by opening night of next year. And I don't know about you, but I don't think the Red Wings are much, if at all, closer than they were the day the Red Wing, the Dizerman took over, other than the fact that now they've just added more prospects and maybe in terms of volume, but in terms of an on-ice, uh, an on-ice winner, I don't know that I think they're much closer than I did on April 19th, 2019. Yeah, I mean, I think I have to agree with you there. I mean, you're, it's hard to make that assessment just because really what's going to make them closer is when either you win the lottery and you nab a, a really outstanding player or you start having a handful of different players kind of outperform their draft expectations. Obviously, we're certainly seeing some of it with Moritz Sider and, and Jonathan Berggren, but that doesn't really move the needle for how much closer they are right now. And so, you know, I think you and I talked about this in the offseason. I think we may have even talked about it on an episode last season. 
there is going to come a point in time where you have to give consideration to trading Anthony Manta, Tyler Bertuzzi, and, you know, as blasphemous as it is to say, Dylan Larkin has to be in that conversation as well based on his age. Now, obviously, he's going to be the least likely. You just named him captain. He's arguably the best player on the team. Uh, So I don't think he's going anywhere. But for both Bertuzzi and Manta, are they going to age themselves out of, you know, being a part of the next really good Red Wings team? I think it's tough to say. I mean, we know that players like those guys can probably maintain their current level all the way through the age of 30, or if not, maybe a little bit drop off, uh, but very, very mild. And so you're only talking about four years where you're going to get the guys kind of at the level where they're at right now. Uh, so I think that's that's going to be the big challenge for Iserman is what does he do with those two? You know, I haven't uh, been all that willing to wade into this conversation in the past when we've had it. I think you probably remember I've been on the more hesitant side for these conversations saying, come on, you can't you can't have a 26-year-old player and say there's no chance he's, he's there when, when they're good because – uh, that's telling you that you basically think it's going to be five years. And, and I, I just think that, you know, you should be able to execute a full rebuild within quicker time than that. However, the more this goes and Anthony Mantha is going to be 27 next year, he's going to have three years after this season on his deal. And then he's an unrestricted free agent. I'm forced to at least say now that I think that it's, it's a very reasonable idea. Now the caveat is he hasn't played well enough to make you feel really great about kind of dealing him at this moment in time where potentially someone's going to get a good deal on you um, because we liked Mantha's contract number on the day that he signed it. Um, but he, I don't think he's necessarily played up to it so far this year. I think it's a bargain for the the kind of production that you got last year on a per game basis. And it's not so much on, on what it's been this year. Obviously he gets healthy scratched and, and you can make what you want of that decision. Um, but at the end of the day, he's under a half point per game and that's not what you made him your longest signed player um, to do. So I, I do think it needs to be a consideration. And I think honestly, you can probably apply similar reasoning to Bertuzzi. Now Bertuzzi's a younger age, 26 than Mantha is. I think he just turned 26. Um, and so again, you get a little bit um, of a wiggle room there, I suppose. But at the same time, I mean, he, he's a guy who I think is built for the playoffs. And and while I think he's going to, again, be effective into the, or the early 30s, um, he's not a kind of those elite players are the ones that you're really confident are going to hang on longer. And I don't think that's Bertuzzi. I think he's a guy who gets by with a lot of, yes, certainly skill, certainly smarts, but a lot of compete too. And that's really inherent to his game. And I, I just wonder if maybe it gets harder and harder to get quite those same results off of that. Um, as he gets into age 30, age 31, is he going to really be someone who is, is that effective at that age where I, I think, you know, Dylan Larkin is a guy who certainly he's the youngest, he's still 24. So I'd still kind of keep him in a different conversation personally, but um, in addition to the fact that he's the captain, but I got to say for the first time um, since we've had this show, I, I think it's at least a, a really reasonable conversation worth having. Yeah, I completely agree because, you know, at the end of the day, you want to, you want to make sure you're maximizing your window, you're maximizing your potential. You don't want to make you want to make sure that if you're going to have these guys uh, not be a part of the next contending team, if you think this team's really kind of four plus years out, that you get something for them. You don't let them walk um, in free agency at the end of their expirations. You know, Todd Bertuzzi is a restricted free agent at the end of the year. You're going to have to make that decision there. Mantha, you know, like you mentioned, Max is already 
has his contract, but again, it's only taken him to age 30. You could potentially lose him at that point for absolutely nothing. So I think if you're Iserman, you have to be listening on everybody on this roster and uh, exploring what could potentially work there. So one thing that that I'm also interested in, in in this conversation is, in my opinion, if you trade either of these guys, you're adding at least one, if not two, years to your timeline back to the playoffs and to contention. But I wanted to see what you thought about that. Like, is that a realistic perspective on all this? Obviously, some of it, you know, depends on how well a guy like Valeno, Berggren, Lucas Raymond, eventually, how well those guys and how quickly they rise to kind of the level that you're hoping they get to. I mean, if, you know, Philip Zadina's impact, for example, hasn't been as instant um, as maybe I thought it would have been on his draft night. And I want to allow for that possibility um, here, but and that that varies as well. Um, but I, I just wondered, like, I mean, how, if you, if I trade Anthony Mantha and I'm Steve Eisman, realistically, what does that do to whatever timeline I have in mind? He, he doesn't give a timeline ever publicly, but I can't imagine that he doesn't have one in his head. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the million dollar question. I think it certainly depends on what you get back. You know, do you make a deal where you go player for player? Do you make like a Taylor Hall for Adam Larson kind of deal? Obviously you would hope that if you're, you're Edmonton, you're getting something more than Adam Larson, but do you make a player for player swap? And if so, how does that change uh, your timeline? Or are you going uh, player for picks? And if you're, I think if you're going for the latter, you have to expect that you're extending at least one or two years on your rebuild timeline to be a contender, um, as opposed to if you go for a player to for player swap. So I think there's options to do both. It'll just be interesting to see what what Eisman really chooses to do, because I think if you do go for uh, the draft pick route, you have to acknowledge that this team may take a step back in the next year before being able to to move forward as you know guys like Lucas Raymond, Jonathan Berger and, and such come over. Who would you prefer to trade if I told you you, you had to trade one, you couldn't trade both? I think Anthony Mantha is going to give you more value. Um, in terms of what you're going to be able to bring back, I think that's that's kind of without a doubt, especially you know given your limited sample size of Bertuzzi this season. We don't know when he's coming back yet. Uh, you may not have a lot of body to work with, uh, and he doesn't have the same pedigree, the same tools, physical tools, and kind of skill set uh, as Anthony Manta that I think you'd be able to get more from a Manta deal. But that being said, Mantha, to me, is a superior player to Bertuzzi, even though hasn't necessarily looked that way this season. Um, and so I think he would be a bigger hurt in the short term there. But I think if you're if you're making a move for the long term, you swing for the fences and you deal Mantha. That's interesting. All right. I could buy it. I, I mean, there, uh, I got one uh, comment uh, kind of question for the I don't know if it's for the show or just in general. App State Nick asked us about you know potentially Carolina and, and Carolina is obviously very top heavy team already with, with some really good talent up front. Um, but obviously they're, they're trying to beat a even more loaded Tampa team to get out of the central division. And he wanted to know about a potential uh, trade with them for one of these younger guys. Um, and, and he brought up Seth Jarvis, who's been excellent so far uh, as a, as a draft plus one player in the AHL or Ryan Suzuki, you know, the, I, I think Jarvis is a little bit wishful thinking there. I think if you're Carolina and with the 13th pick, you just got a guy who's above a point per game as a 19 year old in the AHL. Um, you're not real eager to to part with that player, uh, and I, I think especially at that age, you're um, you're probably 
going to take him off the table, but I, I did want to pose that to you and just see what you thought of, uh, of Carolina's, uh, you know, they don't think they have a ton of cap space, but obviously that gets different at the deadline because of the way the cap is calculated. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're a very interesting team. I think, especially when you factor in, uh, the Seattle expansion draft that's coming up, Yep. uh, they're going to have some very interesting decisions on defense. Um, Dougie Hamilton is a restricted or unrestricted free agent at the end of the season. You would expect that they're going to try and get a deal done with him. And therefore, but don't, do they wait? Do they wait until after Seattle? Yeah. And so even if you wait, right, and you're Carolina, you still have Jacob Slavin, Brady Shea, Jake Gardner, Brett Pesci, Jake Bean. That's okay. a lot of defensemen that need to be protected and a lot of good defensemen that need to be protected. And so, you know, I start to wonder, do you explore a deal where Jake Bean is a big piece and maybe also take a high round pick? Carolina still got all their picks. I mean, does a first and Jake Bean do it for you? Um, Bean's looked pretty solid in his kind of start to the season. He's really been kind of over-ripening to a certain extent in in Charlotte in their AHL um, uh, team for the last little bit. So that would be an interesting deal. Um, you know, beyond that, I would certainly swing for Carolina's prospects. I think they have so many incredible prospects there, you know, between Seth Jarvis, Ryan Suzuki, um, you know, guys like that. But I, I think you would be hard-pressed to get them to part with any of those guys uh, for Anthony Mantha. Um, I think that would be a challenge. Carolina is the team uh, who all they have every prospect that Twitter has ever fallen in love with in their farm system, uh, which I think is incredible. I mean, it's, it's – uh, you know, Seth Jarvis is a guy who I know your model really liked. And I, I like Seth Jarvis a lot too going into this laughter. I don't know that I would have thought uh, – that he would have this kind of impact this quick in the AHL. Um, but now that he has, I mean, it, it's very hard not to notice. And, and Suzuki hasn't been on that same level. I mean, he's a guy who was picked uh, late in the first round in, in 2019. He's at a half a point per game in, in the Chicago, but that's still solid for, for a young player. And he is a young player. I mean, he is still 19. He, he won't turn 20 until um, the end of May. And so I, I don't think, I actually don't think I would do Mantha for Ryan Suzuki straight up personally. Um, but you know, it, it's, uh, it, like you said, it's a farm system that's deep enough that you could cobble together a, a set of prospects. And, and I think being certainly, you know, high on that list of guys that you can target if you do want to go for young players and prospects rather than picks. And, and obviously the, it's the market there would be much broader than just one team. I mean, Montreal is the team that gets brought up with Mantha. Literally any, anytime there's a Mantha trade rumor, somebody from Montreal is suggesting, uh, Victor Mete or something for Anthony Mantha, uh, and some kind of something, but, um, you know, obviously Mantha's from not far outside of Montreal. And, and I think that's where a lot of it comes from. Yeah. I mean, Montreal would be a very interesting trade partner because, you know, they, they're loaded on the wings already. Though. They, right. They're loaded on the wing though. Like they're, they're, they're not hurting for, you know, wings. Oh, they're, they're certainly not, but I think they're interesting for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, we talked about how they have this overinflated sense of what they think their team yes. should be. Um, and two, they are loaded with draft picks. They have all the draft picks, literally all of the draft picks. So, you know, are they a team where if you're Steve Eisenman and you're shrewd, I'm betting on Montreal regressing at some point, potentially next season, you know, can you swing a deal that maybe you take some salary from them, like a Paul Byron, but you get their 2022 first? Um, and then where does that 2022 first end up landing uh, and, and potentially add another piece in there to, to make it all work? Um, 
but that would be an interesting deal, I think, uh, in my opinion. And I think, you know, the other teams that I would certainly consider picking on, uh, Florida may turn themselves into a buyer, you know, just by how well they've played. Florida's got a lot of picks. You know, you can make some salary work with a guy like Brett Connolly, who's on waivers, um, and maybe, you know, ask him for Hepaniemi or something along those lines. And then Arizona is another team that I think also fits in that bucket. So I think I think there'll be a lot of interesting suitors out there and a lot of interesting potential deals the Wings could swing. I'm interested to see how the Canadian division division's trade situation even goes, because after Pierre-Luc Dubois had to sit for two weeks, I mean, that's taking a lot. I mean, now... If you if you're getting a guy who has term, it's less of an issue because you're going to have him for a long time. But um, it it does matter, especially as you're gearing up for a playoff run now. Um, but it's interesting. I mean, the counterbalance to that might be for these Canadian teams. Um, if, if you're Detroit and you want to target a future pick, like you just alluded to a 2022 pick, all of these Canadian teams that are just you know beating the crap out of each other right now are going to have to go back to regular NHL divisions at some point. And so if you're Montreal and you get the 2022 pick. They might not, you know, they might make the playoffs this year. They might be a three seed this year. They might even win a couple of rounds this year. But if you got their 2022 pick, maybe you're getting their pick in a year where they go back into a division and that division has Tampa and Toronto and Boston and, you know, Florida, I think looks legit. I think they look like a legit team right now. Um, you know, I, I've been skeptical about when they're going to come back down to earth, but they're still hanging in there. Um, they're going to have to come back to that division at some point. And, you know, yes, they're going to also be back in, a, in the division with Detroit and Ottawa and Buffalo, which is, wow, that's shaping up to be a real haves and have nots division in a year. <laughs> but, uh, you know, th- there's something to be said for that. Yeah. I mean, Montreal was 12th in the East last year. Yeah. Uh, and so they're not a fundamentally different team. I mean, yes, they made the Max Domi swap for Josh Anderson, but you know, Carey Price is still going to be there and he's only getting worse. Shea Weber is getting older. Um, you know, their their core pieces are getting older. They're a team I would absolutely bet on variance. And you may end up with a Ottawa-San Jose type situation where the floor falls out. And, uh, you know, especially taking away Claude Julian, who had been, in my opinion, an outstanding coach, I would absolutely bet on this team regressing, hitting, uh, you know, hitting a better division next year. But, uh, we'll see what ultimately comes of that. It'll be difficult, like you said. You know, the the whole quarantine period with going to Canada, I think, will make that challenging. Obviously, the safe money is that the Red Wings will not move Anthony Mantha or Tyler Bertuzzi. I mean, that, that's it would be a very big decision. Um, but if somebody comes with the right the, with the right offer, I think I'm finally at the place where you you see the rebuild and you say, you know what, I think you could really justify it timeline wise. Yeah, and I mean, Eiserman's certainly the guy to make the move. I mean, it's not like he hasn't traded Jonathan Druin or traded yeah. Martin St. Louis or traded you name it. Uh, he's more than happy to trade whoever he needs to trade to make the you know make the best moves uh, moving forward. Yep. All right, anything else uh, before we transition into the mailbag? No, I think that's it for me. All right, so we're going to start this mailbag by putting you on the hot seat. Uh one of our listeners, Max Brown, has a question for you, and uh, I don't quite remember this, so you'll have to tell me if this really happened or not. Um, but he says that when the Red Wings claimed Alex Biega, um, you kind of compared his impact to a to a uh, sorry. When the Red Wings claimed Christian Juice, you kind of compared his impact to an Alex Biega type, and he wants to know after uh, you know a, a pretty good sample here now, a few weeks of Christian Juice in Detroit, he scored some nice goals, he broke the power play drought. He wants to know. If you want to retract that, if has your opinion changed or 
What have you to say about Christian Juice after this period so far? I will say he is an older Dennis Chalowski. It's the it's the same thing. I mean, it's uh you know, I'll concede that he's scoring a little bit more than I thought he would. Um, you know, he's a guy who has bounced around a lot of teams, Washington, Anaheim, now, you know, here in Detroit, without really being able to stick, and he's age 26. You shouldn't expect a lot out of those guys. I mean, Diego is a similar claim. 29 hadn't really been able to stick in Vancouver when the Wings claimed him. Uh, but the the point that I was making with that is when you assess more than just his scoring, uh, which he's got two goals, five points in 20 games, uh, and you just look at kind of what his overall impact on the ice is, we can use a, a goals above replacement model, which factors in quality of teammates, quality of competition, how the players perform relative to their uh, teammates. It's going to factor in a number of different things like that. Christian Juice has been the worst defenseman on the Red Wings by goals above replacement. In fact, he does have the lowest goals above replacement um, of any Red Wings defenseman right now. So I don't think I'll retract any of what I said. In fact, his impact is worse than what Viegas was last year um, on a per 60 minute basis. I think you have to take the blinders off of just the scoring and recognize when he's on the ice, the wings are giving up a lot of goals against, and a lot of it is getting attributed to him from these models uh, because when those teammates are on the ice with other players, it's not the same, you know, concern or when they're facing similar competition without him on the ice, it's not the same concern. So, uh, think just take the points blinders off and look at him. And it's very similar to what you were getting from Dennis Jalowski. Yeah, I, I think, you know, that's one of the interesting things about juice is it, you know, Dennis Jalowski is succeeding in the AHL right now. I mean, he's, he's running a good power play. He's over a point per game. And you look and you say, okay, should they call him up? And uh, honestly, the guy whose spot you would presume that he would take is probably Christian juice. I mean, that's the guy who has been kind of, um, in the role that the Red Wings uh, w- would have for Dennis Chalowski. You, they're Based on the way that they talk about how they want to play, I don't see them having um, more than one, maybe two guys who really give you the bulk, if not all of their value in the offensive end and on the power play. So, you know, that's going to be interesting because I think as you look at the Red Wings and what they do at this deadline, you know, if they do make any space on the on the blue line, you would think that Chalowski fills it. Um, but I almost wonder if, you know, Gustav Lindstrom's down there too. He's the same age, you know, I, obviously if Chalowski keeps us up, they have to, they have to, they're gonna have to do something and bring him up because you told him to go be elite. He's been quite good on the power play, um, elite production at least. Um, but you know, I, I think that comp about, uh, you know, juice as an older Chalowski, you know, I, I think Chalowski probably still has a little bit more upside than, than Christian juice, but I think in profile, I think you're spot on. Yeah, I mean, they just remind me stylistically of very similar players. And so maybe that's the reason why Juice is sticking and Chalowski's not, is that as a 26-year-old, his defensive game is a little bit more mature. Um, he, he tends to maybe make a little bit better reads, but it's where I think Chalowski's going to go in terms of his NHL career is a player very similar to Christian Juice. So, you know, it's just, do you want the older version right now or do you want to allow the younger version to get there? I think that's just what you're talking about. But at the end of the day, Neither of these guys moves the needle. And that's why originally I made that Alex Biega comparison and that they just don't move the needle, even though I very much respect Christian Juice for ending our power play drought. All right, moving on. Uh, next question is from Sports Trappist Monk. And I love this question. Is there anything you recommend watching for 
uh, when you're watching better NHL teams to kind of grasp the difference between them and a team like the Red Wings. He, he says he's a beer league player and he's not sure what to look for that will actually be meaningful instead of just results-based observations like, oh, well, the other team cleared the puck, so that must mean uh, the Red Wings did something wrong. Like, what do you what do you look for when you watch other games as a good point of reference for what the Red Wings aren't doing? Uh, that's a outstanding question because you know sometimes hockey's so fast you can get lost in what's happening stylistically. For me, the two things I watch that really separate good teams from bad teams is watch their zone exits and watch their zone entries, and notice just how often the exits and entries are done with possession of the puck. Uh, You watch a team like Detroit, it's very much throw the puck out off the boards. Let's reset our defensive scheme, um, but we're not going to be able to exit and attack and transition. It's all about the transition game. And that's, to me, the biggest difference for good teams versus bad teams is how well can you transition with possession versus kind of chasing the puck a lot. And I think Detroit's a team that chases the puck. They're more than happy once they recover it you know, to try a long stretch pass, to shoot it down for a deflection, to reset the rink. I mean, it's effectively watching a team that's willing to go for it on fourth down versus a team that just wants to punt the ball for field position. It's it's a huge difference um, between good and bad teams. It's the team trying to score versus the team playing for field position. That's how, at least how I view good and bad teams. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I, th- I think entries are, are a really good point of uh, comparison. Certainly, I think, you know, one practical thing to watch is also just how they're doing it. I mean, it, it, it's, you know, the, the Red Wings drop pass takes a ton of heat on online. Uh, and yet so many other teams use the drop pass and it works. And so I think one thing to watch is like, why does it work for some teams and not the Red Wings? And um, one thing I think I always notice is that the Red Wings always, ex- everyone except the puck by the time, everyone except the puck carrier by the time the puck carrier is trying to enter the zone, is just standing on the blue line. And and that's something I'm always curious about is, is, is there anything to do differently there to get a little more motion so that it's a little less obvious who the one that's going to be actually entering the zone is or what they're going to do with it once they get inside? That's something I'm really curious about. I don't know that I have a good answer for it. And, and, and it's something maybe I should watch a little more closely for too to see how uh, how teams pull it off because they do. They do pull it off and it's something that uh, has always fascinated me. Yeah, I mean, the drop pass is always a fun one to pick on because you watch a team like Washington that does it so well when they do it. You watch a team, I mean, hell, you know, a lot of people watch the Wings for enough years to remember that the Wings did this a lot 2014-2015 and on their way to the best power play in the league. Like, that was their go-to. I think the drop pass for me, I think, comes down to the person who's actually carrying the puck, their decision-making ability. I actually don't know that there's anything systematic to it. Um, But for the wings, when they were so good at it, it's because you were dropping the puck to Pavel Datsuk. Nobody wanted to defend Datsuk. Nobody wants to defend Datsuk one-on-one because you don't, you get caught between, do I give him space or do I try and close the gap? And either way he makes you look silly. And that's what made the wings so effective there. Um, I think it's similar for other teams. You know, Larkin's got to be able to use his speed to his advantage and make better decisions. Maybe he does a short chip off the boards and tries to step past uh, the defender or something along those lines as opposed to trying to maintain possession and go through the defender. I think it comes down to decision-making. But yeah, that's another good thing to watch, again, when you're thinking about talent level. All right, and then uh, Clickbait Keith asks, when will you two start counseling after last week's debates? We had a couple of heated uh, exchanges last week about Philip Hironik and about uh, Luke Lindening and the importance of face-offs. 
I mean, you know, Max, as soon as you uh, you sent over that uh, apologetic bottle of bourbon, <laughs> I will more than happy happily pour a glass of it and have. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, there, it, there's nothing heated about it for me. I think I I'm just a super passionate person about the way I think about things, and I know you are too. And none of it is ever heated. It's just interesting for me to discuss different ways to think about it. And at the end of the day, everybody's right. Like no one's wrong in the way they're thinking about it. You just have a different way to go about it. And that's fine. Like totally okay with that. Oh, I am too. And I think it's, it's also kind of what makes the podcast worth listening to. I don't know if you guys want to, sometimes we do it anyway, but I don't know if you guys want to listen to two guys come on here and uh, say, I agree uh, 40 times in, in an hour. <laughs> I mean, and and there's no point in that because hockey's not so black and white where you can yeah. just be like, yeah, this is the only way to think about things. It's, there's a value in thinking about things from a different perspective and introducing new ideas and introducing new information and seeing how you change your opinion. And and that's all about being a good kind of analyst and discusser of things is how do you change your opinion when you're presented with information that's different than what you originally considered? Uh, so that's that's the whole fun of it. Yeah, I agree. We are we are completely fine for anyone who was not uh, not so sure about it. But like, well, we, we've we've disagreed uh, before that, and we'll disagree again, and and we'll keep doing the show uh, no matter how uh, how much we do. Yeah, exactly. All right, uh, and then last one for today, uh, Jake Rivard says, "What has been your brightest spot of the Red Wings season?" Uh, I mean, if I'm picking just something from the player standpoint, I think my bright spot. It's honestly Evgeny Sveshnikov just being able to come up, get a couple games in, stay healthy, score some goals, be real exciting. But I think kind of the the bigger thing for me that will probably highlight the season is what you guys were able to do with donating money to the Jamie Daniels Foundation. I think that's just really incredible, and it kind of puts hockey in perspective that you know you, we had an opportunity to take something bad and turn it into something good. And you guys did that in spades. And so that's just something I'll, I'll hang on to is definitely being the highlight of this season and really the highlight of me covering the wings for so many years. Yeah, I think for me, not many people know this, but um, Luke Glendening is the faceoff leader in the NHL. And <laughs> Sorry, I did that entirely to see Prashant's face when I said it. Uh, no, I, like, obviously there haven't been a ton of, uh, from their perspective, you know, bright spots for, for this team. I think if you're looking for one, it, it probably comes in the form of some of these, uh, you know, kind of around the edges upgrades that Steve Eisman made in free agency. I think you, you probably, you know, from what we've talked about on this show before, I think people will be familiar with this idea, but when you hire a GM, it's not really realistic to expect that they're going to come in and make five, you know, massive home run wins in, in free agency or on trades or even in the draft. Although where the Red Wings are drafting, it, maybe it is a little more reasonable to hope for some home runs. Um, but what you're really hoping for are, are a couple things is, is great moves uh, at the margins on, on guys like Troy Stetcher, John Merrill, who you're signing for cheap. You're not giving up anything except money and a little bit of contract term. Um, and, and in trades and, and maybe Robbie Fabry kind of fits that bill too. I think if you're looking for a bright spot though, like it's the, Eiserman's track record this off season in doing that, you know, we, we did, we did talk about Thomas Grace's struggles and that would kind of be the, um, the exception here, but Bobby Ryan, Troy Stetcher, John Merrill, I think Vladislav, Vladislav Nemesnikov, sorry, uh, has, has had his moments. I think that's a pretty big positive and that 
the hit rate there is pretty good. And, and that's something that, um, especially for, for how little risk he took, I mean, the, the, the upside on those is, is looking real, especially in, in guys like Stetcher and Merrill, in my opinion. And if you do turn Bobby Ryan, who, by the way, is their leading scorer right now, um, into a, a, an asset in the draft or a prospect, um, I, I think that's probably the bright spot is that he kind of gave you something out of nothing to, to start with. Yeah, I think all of those have been outstanding and also throwing Matias Brome getting yeah. his first NHL goal. I mean, that was, oh, that was a great moment. Outstanding. I mean, that's a great moment. So, you know, overall, there's a lot of bright spots here, even though it's not been a fun season as expected. All right. The Red Wings will play uh, two games this week. We'll talk to you in between them. So we'll just talk for now about uh, Columbus, March 2. It's a one-off. They don't play many of those this year. Um, you want to give any, uh, I don't know, Twitter length uh, preview of the game against Columbus on March 2nd, 7 p.m.? Uh, well, you're hoping the Wings can dominate play the way they did in the first two games against Columbus at the beginning of the season. I thought those were two of Detroit's best games. And so hopefully you see something similar. Yeah, they they played Columbus uh, pretty tight in those games, and so we'll, we'll see how it goes. Obviously, uh, it'll be interesting to see Patrick Laine, uh for the first time in a Columbus uniform. I haven't been able to watch him there yet, although I have seen a couple highlights, and uh, still looks like Patrick Laine to me. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll see how it goes for the Red Wings. It, it's kind of a bounce-back situation for them. I would certainly expect to see Jonathan Bernier back in net for that one, um, and based on the way those two teams like to play, I, I'd expect a fairly... Uh, you know, tightly contested, uh, probably low scoring affair, but we'll see. I, I actually don't see a line for that game right now on, uh, on bet MGM. So I don't know if that's coming later or, or what the situation is there. Um, but certainly we will, uh, we'll see how that goes and then we can let you in on it. Let me see if I can just scroll and find that really quick. Uh, so yeah, the, the Red Wings in that one are getting a goal and a half, uh, over under set at five and a half. They're plus 150 on the money line. Columbus is minus 175. Um, or you can get them plus 155 if you take a minus 1.5. Um, so we'll see how that shakes out. I mean, over under at, at five and a half does tell you that uh, I think the expectation of a low scoring game uh, certainly holds up from what what the, what the Vegas line suggests. But uh, if you want to bet that game, just make sure you're going to betmgm.com using promo code WINGSPOD, and hopefully you win some money. If not, we'll see you right back here on Wednesday. <laughs>